Well, today we're going to begin looking at Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we'll uh, look today and indeed for the next several messages at Paul's greeting, which is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which reads this way, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, to the saints being in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we actually start talking about the text of Scripture, we want to talk by way of introduction about the place and people to whom this epistle of Paul was written, the Ephesians and the city of Ephesus. Talk a little bit about the history, the culture of Ephesus, the uh, features of Ephesus, as a number of these things make appearances in the scriptures, and there are characters from Ephesus that make appearances in the scriptures, and there are aspects to the history and culture uh, of Ephesus that reflect or are reflected perhaps in uh, the letter itself. Ephesus was a city in a province that the Romans referred to as Asia, but what we would call Asia Minor, and it was the capital city of this Asian province. And as the capital city of the province, it was ruled by a Roman deputy who was called a proconsul. Ephesus was well chosen as a capital city. It was well situated. It lay in a fertile valley with a very fine climate. And it had a, a extremely large man-made harbor called Panormus. And the city was connected by road to all the other major cities of the province. So it was connected by road. It was connected by sea. Um, it was in a fertile area. Uh, all these things combining together to cause Ephesus to grow into a population in New Testament times that may have been as large as 500,000 people. So by any standard, both ancient and modern, uh, a very large and cosmopolitan city. The history of Ephesus is interesting and important for the scriptures themselves, um, this history I'm going to draw from both um, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia and Fawcett's uh, tradition says that in early times, near the place where the mother goddess of the earth was born, the Amazons built a city and a temple in which they might worship. This little city of the Amazons bearing at different times the names of Samorna, Trachea, Ortigia, and Petelia flourished 
until in the early Greek days it aroused the cupidity of Androclus, a prince of Athens. He captured it and made it a Greek city. Still another tradition says that Androclus was, in fact, the founder of the city and didn't capture it from anyone. However, under Greek rule, the Greek civilization gradually supplanted that of the Orientals. The Greek language was spoken in place of the Asiatic, and the Asiatic goddess of the temple assumed more or less the character of the Greek Artemis. Ephesus, therefore, and all that pertained to it was a mixture of Oriental and Greek. Though the early history of the city is obscure, it seems that at different times it was in the hands of the Carians, the Leleges, and the Ionians. In the early historical period, it was one of a league of twelve Ionian cities. In 560 BC, it came into the possession of the Lydians. Three years later, was taken by the Persians, and during the following years the Greeks and Persians were constantly disputing for its possession. And finally Alexander the Great took it, and at his death it fell to Lysimachus, who gave it the name of Arsinoe from his second wife. Upon the death of Attalus II, king of Pergamus, it was bequeathed to the Roman Empire, and in 190 when the Roman province of Asia was formed, it became a part of it. Besides being famed as the birthplace of the two painters Apelles and Parasius and the philosopher Heraclitus, Ephesus, and this was, is important scripturally, Ephesus was notorious for its magical arts and amulets of parchment with inscribed incantations valued at enormous prices. So that from put together from ISBE and Fawcett. Now there were in the feet, in the uh, city there were certain prominent features, really two especially. One was uh, the Ephesian theater. They boasted at the time that it was the largest in the world. It could seat for certain at least twenty-five thousand people and perhaps as many as 50,000, which again, even by today's standards, is a very large venue. They had plays, they had um, extravaganzas, they had spectacles, animal combat, uh, animal man gladiatorial combat, and it's also where they held uh, their public assemblies. The other important feature in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, as it's called in the scriptures. It was one of the seven wonders of the world uh, as they were compiled by Antipater of Sidon. He wrote, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand." 
again, drawing from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, uh, we read regarding the Temple of Diana, It is to the Temple of Diana, however, that its great wealth and prominence are largely due. Like the city, it dates from the time of the Amazons, yet what the early temple was like, we now have no means of knowing, and of its history we know little, except that it was seven times destroyed by fire and rebuilt each time on a scale larger and grander than before. The wealthy King Croesus supplied it with many of its stone columns, and the pilgrims from all the Oriental world brought it of their wealth. In time, the temple possessed valuable lands. It controlled the fish, uh, fisheries. Its priests were the bankers of its enormous revenues. Because of its strength, the people stored there their money for safekeeping, and it became to the ancient world practically all that the Bank of England is to the modern world, or perhaps we would say what the Federal Reserve Bank is to the modern world. In 356 BC, on the very night when Alexander the Great was born, it was burned. And when he grew to manhood, he offered to rebuild it at his own expense if his name might be inscribed upon its portals. But this the priests of Ephesus were unwilling to permit, and they politely rejected his offer by saying that it was not fitting for one god to build a temple to another. The wealthy Ephesians themselves undertook its reconstruction, and 220 years passed before its final completion. Not only was the Temple of Diana a place of worship and a treasure house, but it was also a museum in which the best statuary and most beautiful paintings were preserved. Among the paintings was one by the famous Apelles, a native of Ephesus, representing Alexander the Great hurling a thunderbolt. It was also a sanctuary for the criminal, a kind of city of refuge, for none might be arrested for any crime whatever when within a bowshot of its walls. There sprang up, therefore, about the temple, a village in which the thieves and murderers and other criminals made their homes. Not only did the temple bring vast numbers of pilgrims to the city, as does Kaaba at Mecca at the present time, but it employed hosts of people apart from the priests and priestesses. Among them were the large number of artisans who manufactured images of the goddess Diana, or shrines to sell to the visiting strangers. The temple was built on a foundation which was reached by a flight of ten steps. The building itself was 425 feet long and 220 feet wide. Each of its 127 pillars, which supported the roof of its colonnade, was 60 feet high. The Diana of Ephesus, instead of the graceful Grecian goddess of the chase, was a mummy-shaped body with what were formerly regarded as many breasts or eggs, now believed to be an ornament ending in a point, and with the head of a female with mural crowned and hands with a bar of metal in each. So a very striking description, both of the history uh, of the Temple of Diana, uh, its importance in the city and its effect on the city, uh, and indeed the fact that it was a kind of commercial operation even for the city of Ephesus. Now Paul, according to the scriptures, has a history with 
the church in Ephesus. Beyond merely the letter to the Ephesians, which we have, in what is called the second missionary journey of Paul, which depending on your particular opinion on which dating scheme should be followed, took place somewhere between 49 and 51 AD, Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus. And he came to Ephesus. This is Acts 18, 19 through 21. And he came to Ephesus and he left those, Priscilla and Aquila, there. But he, going into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. And they, asking him to remain over a longer time with them, he did not agree, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast at Jerusalem. But I will come again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So, just there briefly during the second missionary journey, during the third missionary journey, which again takes place between 53 and 57 AD and is recounted in Acts 19, during the third missionary journey, Paul came and indeed stayed for an extended period of time, uh, over, over two years in fact. This is when he cemented a relationship uh, with the people, the Christians of Ephesus, and which really emerges uh, in his epistle. This epistle to the Ephesians was written during his first Roman imprisonment, not the one which ended in his martyrdom, but the Roman imprisonment from which he was ultimately released. Again, depending on your dating scheme, this was sometime between 57 to 62 AD. So, within some period, probably, uh, of years, since he had been resident with the Ephesians, he comes to write this letter to the Ephesians. Now, we can broadly divide the epistle to the Ephesians into two halves. There is the first three chapters and the second three chapters. Speaking of chapter 1, 1 through chapter 3, 21, there is this message. God has graciously extended to the Gentiles, as Gentiles, all the blessings of the new covenant initiated by the Messiah's sacrificial death. Very broadly speaking, that is the message of the first three chapters. The message of the second three chapters is this. In light of God, including the Gentiles, in all the messianic covenant blessings, the life of the Christian assembly should be marked by transformed behavior, truth, unity, and mutual edification, rather than the self-consumed, destructive, and 
ultimately lust-fueled behavior of the unbelievers. God has graciously extended to the Gentiles as Gentiles all the blessings of the new covenant initiated by the Messiah's sacrificial death and in light of God, including the Gentiles in these covenant blessings, the life of the Christian church should be one marked by transformed behavior, truth, unity, and mutual edification and not the self-consumed destructive and lust-fueled behavior of the unbelievers. So we come now to our actual text, Paul's greeting. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God to the saints being in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says he is an apostle by the will of God. And so the very first question that confronts us in the text is what is an apostle? And we can answer that in a grammatical way we can answer it in a historical or theological way. Answering the question grammatically, what is an apostle? The Greek word is apostolos. It literally means one who is sent. From the Greek verb apostello, to send. So apostello, to send, apostolos, the one who is sent. In classical Greek, which is not always a safe guide, and certainly not an authoritative guide to the meaning of a word in Biblical Greek, uh, or Koine Greek, or Common Greek, but still can be uh, useful to investigate. A, an apostolos in classical Greek was an ambassador, a kind of delegate or official representative. And this Apostolos in classical Greek was distinguished from an angelos, from which we get the word angel, who was merely a messenger. So the apostolos was the uh, a kind of ambassador, uh, a delegate, and a angelos, a much kind of lower level uh, office, uh, more of a, a, a hired messenger. But that's classical Greek. Uh, still an interesting distinction. What is an apostle in the historical or theological or biblical sense? Well, the concept of an apostle first appears in the New Testament scriptures in the calling of the twelve. Luke 6, verse 13 and when it became day, he called his disciples, also choosing out twelve from amongst them, whom he also named apostles. So Jesus has gathered together a larger body of people around him, whom he calls his disciples, and from that group he chooses out twelve and names them apostles. 
Mark 3:14 and 15 expands on this definition a little bit. And he made twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them to proclaim and to have authority to heal diseases and to cast out the demons. Similarly, Luke 9, 1 and 2. And having called together his twelve disciples, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the ones being sick. To some degree, uh, in some of these passages, the disciples versus apostles is used almost interchangeably. But there are some key points as we seek a biblical definition of what it was or is to be an apostle. The key points from these passages are, first of all, an apostle was chosen by Christ. No one appoints themselves to be an apostle of Christ. They were all chosen individually and personally by Christ. Secondly, they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And that very much ties in with that classical Greek definition or idea of the apostle as an ambassador or an official representative. So they were chosen by Christ, but they were chosen by Christ to do something very specific, to be sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And thirdly, and importantly at this point, they were empowered to perform miraculous signs of healing and exorcism. And this was not just to entertain crowds, but to accompany the proclamation of the kingdom of God and to, in a sense, validate that message or their legitimacy in proclaiming that message. The concept is developed a little bit in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have the emergence of the twelve as a distinct and indeed limited group to which no one can really be added. Uh, We don't get the 14, the 15, the 16, the 18, the 21, the 40. It's always the 12. This includes or involves indeed even the replacement of Judas so that there would continue to be a discrete specific group of 12 apostles. And the story of that replacement, which is instructive as to just what an apostle is, is told in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a gathering of about 120 people, and said, Brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas, who became the God for those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted as one of us and received a share in this ministry. Now this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his unjust deed and falling head first, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. 
This became known to all who lived in Jerusalem, so that in their own language they called that field Hakeldema, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his house become deserted, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of responsibility. So indeed, the replacement of Judas was looked at as even a necessary fulfillment of prophecy. Thus, one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus associated with us, beginning from his baptism by John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection together with us. So they proposed two candidates, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you've chosen to assume the task of this service and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and the one chosen was Matthias. So he was counted with the eleven apostles. So we have here... uh, Again, qualifications. He was to be a personal witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He was, in effect, to be chosen by God directly through, in this case, the use of the lot as a direct appeal to God. His commission was to become a witness of his resurrection with us. In this case, a witness meaning not one who sees something, but one who speaks of what they've seen. Now, this event of the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas led to a concept of apostolic qualifications. That is, what it is to be an apostle, what was necessary. And this, in fact, became an issue for Paul himself. Paul was forced to defend his calling as an apostle. First of all, he had seen the risen Christ and was therefore qualified to be a witness to the resurrection. Am I not an apostle? He said in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Have I not seen our Lord Jesus Christ? And Saul arriving in Jerusalem, he tried to be joined to the disciples, and all feared him, not believing that he is a disciple. But taking hold of him, Barnabas led him to the apostles and told them, and this is the crucial bit, how he saw the Lord in the highway, and that he spoke to him, and how in Damascus he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. So he has seen the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ has spoken to him directly. And subsequent to that, he has become a bold witness for Jesus. Acts 9:26 and 27. So he was he was a witness to the resurrection of Christ or he had seen the risen Christ. Secondly, he was commissioned 
directly by Christ. Ephesians 1.1, our very text. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Or, more elaborately, in Galatians 1.11 and 12, And brethren, I make known to you the gospel preached by me, that it is not according to man. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Acts 9:15 and 16, And the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for this one, speaking of Saul who became Paul, this one is a chosen vessel to me, to bear my name before nations and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So even here, speaking to a a third party, speaking to Ananias, the Lord explains that Paul is his chosen vessel to bear his name before nations and kings and the sons of Israel. So he'd seen the risen Christ and was thus qualified to be a witness to the resurrection, he was commissioned directly by Christ to be one who would proclaim his name. Thirdly, he had performed the miraculous signs that were specifically given to the apostleship, just as they they had been given to the twelve, they were given to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12.12 Truly, the signs of an apostle were worked out among you in all patience, in miraculous signs, and in wonders, and by works of power. And then fourthly, he had engaged in successful missionary labors. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet I am indeed to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship, in the Lord. Now really, in many ways, only only the third and fourth qualifications here were verifiable, so to speak. Uh, it was only his word that he had seen the risen Christ. It was his word and the word of Ananias that he had been commissioned by God to be an apostle. But there was no denying that he had, he had done the signs of an apostle. And his primary argument to the Corinthians, uh, they were the seal, the ratification, the proof of his apostleship. His primary argument is his work and its success. Now there are in the scriptures other characters who are referred to as apostles. It is implied in 1 Corinthians 9.6 that Barnabas is an apostle, Silvanus, sometimes called Silas, and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 2.6 are called apostles, Andronicus and Junius or Junia in Romans 16.7. So there's obviously a question. In what sense are these men apostles? Is there a distinction between them and the twelve or the twelve plus Paul as the one born out of due time, is there a difference between a big A apostle and a little a apostle? Is there some kind of lower subsidiary office in the church above evangelist but below 
the Big A Apostle. Well, this question of the Big A versus Little A Apostle is uh, an interesting one. By way of giving an answer, we might first throw this out. If the apostleship was tightly limited, if it was limited merely to the twelve plus Paul, why would Paul warn against false apostles? Because the claim, that is the claim of, of a person to be an apostle, would contain its own refutation. In other words, if you could name who the twelve apostles were plus Paul, and someone came along and said they were an apostle, and they were not one of the twelve or Paul, then no one would ever be fooled. There would even You wouldn't even need to warn against the idea of a false apostle, because it would be a completely ridiculous thing to claim. It would be like uh, someone claiming they were uh, the President of the United States or had been the President of the United States. Well, y you can look that up. You can number them. You can name them. Uh, if you're not one of those people, uh, then it's a ridiculous claim. It's so ridiculous that no one would ever be taken in by it. So that would seem to suggest that the apostleship was not as tightly limited as it first appears, and that maybe there is not a huge distinction between a big A apostle and a little a apostle. There is only the distinction between the twelve as a discrete group, perhaps even being typologically significant, twelve apostles for the twelve tribes of Israel, and then Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, the one born out of due time. There's certainly no example of anyone being elected to the apostleship. Uh, there are, as we've already seen, certain qualifications that seem to be regarded as normative. Certainly it was the basis of Paul's defense to be included in the number of apostles. And, and in fact, he did not make the argument uh, that there were only 12 or there were only 12 plus 1. He simply laid out a series of facts about himself that justified his claim to the apostleship. He was witness to the risen Jesus. He was appointed by Christ. He was imbued with power. And he was engaged in successful missionary endeavor. It may be that we need to get away from looking at the, at the apostleship from the concept of office, because this is, how, this is how it's most often done. People say, well, what are the biblical offices? Uh, apostle, uh, evangelist, uh, uh, pastor, elder, bishop, and what have you. And the whole concept becomes around uh, this idea of office, which is really quite unhelpful and, and perhaps even largely unbiblical. We need to look instead not at office, but at gifting. And gifting was primarily evidenced by one's actions. The only verifiable evidence of apostleship in the New Testament really is the missionary endeavor accompanied by 
the signs and wonders because because even the claim uh, even the issue of having seen the risen Christ Paul did not see the risen Christ during the time that Jesus was on earth. Paul saw the risen Christ in a revelation from heaven, which is not really a verifiable event in terms of proving it to someone else that you come across. You say, well, well, I had a vision and I saw Christ. The verifiable evidence of apostleship appears to be the missionary endeavor with power. So perhaps it would be better to see the apostles or the apostleship not so much as a kind of limited ruling class who controlled and guided the early church, but more of a dispersed body of missionaries. Now there's certainly, that's not a perfect or uh, unproblematic definition because we run up on the term evangelist. If an apostle is essentially a missionary, then then what is an evangelist, and how is it different? There could be could it be a continuity, yet with a recognized distinction? Could there be a certain historical preeminence, if not actual authority, in Paul and the twelve versus these later men? Uh, hard to say. This whole subject is somewhat difficult, but there are certain uh, facts that we can't get around. We have the twelve who are apostles. We have Paul who is an apostle, and we have at least five other people who are either directly called apostles or who are uh, implied as being numbered amongst the apostles. We have the idea of qualifications for the apostleship, certainly. Uh, set forth. Well, a few conclusions. Regardless of the exact nature of this later epistolary apostleship, Paul himself writes as a primal apostle and an obvious product himself of divine, sovereign, irresistible grace. He was not elected to office. He did not appoint himself to office. He was called by the risen Christ to bear witness of his resurrection to the nations. And while he raises his apostleship, he himself would have had us to judge not on the basis of the claim, but rather the Spirit's application of his ministry to our hearts and lives. And in that sense, it is just as he says to the Corinthians, if Paul's words are used by the Spirit of God to transform us, then he is an apostle to us, if to none other. Thirdly, apostles are given to the body of Christ as part of the calling, as part of the building as part of the equipping of that body. They are not given to the world. Paul, and indeed any of the other apostles, are of no benefit to the world and of no use to them. Ephesians chapter 4, 
11 through 16, it was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Who did he give them to? Why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So we are no longer to be children, tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes, but practicing the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. From him, the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love.